Welcome to the Kingdom Roots Podcast with Scott McKnight, the conversation designed to look at how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now. Today on the podcast, we have a conversation about the Essenes. You know, it's been um, pretty insightful to be able to spend some time talking about these different groups, really, for me anyway, to help understand the um, really the world of the first century that Jesus came to. And the one that we have today are the Essenes, right? Am I thinking right on that, yep, Scott? Yep, 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 the Essenes for today. You know, Chaz, one way to think about this is if you grew up as, let's just say, an ordinary American uh no matter what ethnicity or race, if you grew up in the United States um, and were not deeply involved religiously, but you were, you know, you knew a little bit about American Christianity, whatever, you would be able to choose the group you wanted to be a part of. Mm-hmm. There is a sense in which that has some viability in the first century. You could, you could be a Pharisee. You could be. You couldn't choose to be a Sadducee. That's something you're born with. Um, You could be so zealous for the law that you could become a zealot, or you could be very pious and join the Essenes, or you could just be ordinary and follow the law as ordinary Jews did. You didn't have to join a group, Mm -hmm. but you could. So um, there were options for first century Jews, just as there are options for us, they're not as many, but in the end, we probably don't have as many as we think we do. Um, we have all these little nuances, and probably in the first century, uh, one man's Pharisee is another man's liberal or something like sure. that. So, so yes, there were, there were options in the first century. Yeah, and today we're talking about the Essenes, which yeah. is a group that probably, and I don't think the word Essene is anywhere in the New Testament and in interactions nope, not, with, with Jesus, appear. but we do know a lot about them for a, because of a pretty significant discovery in Qumran, and I've had the chances, I know you have as well, to, to be able to be there and to see the, the um, Dead Sea Scrolls discovery and all of that. And so there's there's a lot actually that we can know about the Essenes, isn't there? Yeah, I, I would say there uh, we know more about the Essenes uh, than we do about Sadducees and Zealots. And if you discount the rabbis, we, we know more about the Essenes than the Pharisees. If you think the rabbis are uh, virtual equivalents to first century Pharisees, then, then we know quite a bit. But the most dramatic discovery of the 20th century for Bible uh, people, for Bible scholars, for historians of Judaism, for Jews, was the discovery of scrolls in 1948 along the Dead Sea, uh, and they first discovered in a cave. It led to discoveries in more caves, and the result uh, was that we found a community that had been uh, uh, flourishing in the first century pretty close to the Dead Sea, that we now call the Qumran community, and we call the scrolls that were found the Dead Sea Scrolls. And most people would say that the community that lived at Qumran uh, is, was the Essenes, though that does not mean that every discovery made in the Dead Sea area, in all the caves, 
came from the Essene community at Qumran. So we were pretty sure that during the Jewish war from 66 to 73 in Jerusalem by the Romans and then eventually the sacking of Masada south of Qumran, but along the same road, and this, you know, it's it's quite a far, it's quite a bit farther down. But if you're going to from Jerusalem to Masada, you have to go by Qumran. And if you're going from Masada north of the Dead Sea, you're going to go by Qumran. So these things uh, have a little bit of connection. But um, it is pro- it is quite likely that people from Jerusalem in the area, when they wanted to uh, run from the Romans or at least hide some of their most important possessions, including manuscripts, some of which could have come from the temple area or high priests or Sadducees or Pharisees. Um, They found places to bury them in the caves around the Dead Sea, uh, around the Dead Sea and near Qumran. And now what we have is like a massive collection of manuscripts, not all of which can be equated with the Essene community, but the but there are significant ones there that allow us to know quite a bit about the Essenes. Yeah, so what is it that those documents revealed to us about who the Essenes were, what they believed, why they maybe practiced their understanding of Judaism the way that they did? Well, um, I should probably begin with what the word Essene means, because, you know, we, we call people Baptists because they baptize adults, and they're known for their baptismal practice, and Presbyterians are known for their church government that go through elders or presbyters. The Essenes, there's there are lots of speculations on why this uh, why this word, what it meant. But one of the standard uh, conclusions by one of my uh, constant sources on the Essenes, uh, a man named Jurg Frey, uh, would suggest that it refers to the pious ones coming from the Aramaic chase. And Hasin, and this uh, it means it means almost certainly that the Essenes, and this is a theory that I have believed since the 1980s when I first began to study the Dead Sea Scrolls, and that the Essenes were a breakoff of the Hasidic movement that formed as a result of the Maccabean crisis in Jerusalem from, uh, from about 170 BC forward. During that next generation, next couple generations, um, there were different attempts at what it meant to be fully holy so that they could avoid, or at least believe they could avoid, being captured by foreign countries. And one of the first ones was the Maccabean revolt against the Syrians um, and uh, Antiochus Epiphanes. And the result of that was that one of the Maccabees, Jonathan Maccabee, uh, decides that he will be a priest, and this is not kosher for people who believe that only priests should be priests. You have to have the proper lineage. So there was a there was within Judaism quite a bit of response to Jonathan Maccabeus becoming a high priest and becoming a priest and usurping that role. And many people, and the Hasidic movement is one of the parts of rebellion or revolt or at least challenge. And I believe the Essenes were a strong-minded set of of, uh, Jews, a part of the Hasidic movement, who because of this appointment of Jonathan Maccabeus 
And because they were led by someone who had more of a right, often called a Zedekite priest, had more of a right to be the high priest, they, they thought that the entire temple sacrificial system was corrupt, and therefore they could not participate in that system. Now, that's, that's a pretty standard explanation. Everything about the Dead Sea Scrolls and the Essenes is up for grabs these days. Scholars have lots of differences. But it would be like someone appointing uh, themselves to be pastor in a strongly liturgical or sacramental tradition. And, there's, and someone's saying, look, you, you cannot bless the bread and the wine because you do not have proper apostolic succession uh, and so, therefore, whatever whatever sacraments are served by you are not genuine sacraments. It's it was something like that, and on that order, I think that got it started. So, so that's that's a that's a kickoff to to what we have to say about the Essenes. Yeah, that provides the the foundation about their their name and a little bit of their history. And yeah. then what to to get into more of their practice i mean what was unique because what i understand about them is that they they took that and they went off and they were a group totally about exclusion and about um being able to respond to the status quo by um by being purged from away from the rest of the group and just pretty much doing their own thing well i think that's i think that's a good uh starting place for understanding the Essenes, they were the pious ones, kind of super pious. But it, it, it kind of depends on who you ask. If you ask, you know, there's the three major sources for what we know, four major sources for what we know about the Essenes. comes from Philo, uh, from Alexandria, who almost certainly is dependent upon someone else telling him what they were like. And he says some very interesting things, not always accurate. Second century guy named Pliny the Elder described a group of people alongside the Dead Sea Scroll with fair degree of accuracy. Uh, we don't know his source. He didn't visit the community. Uh, so, and they weren't, they weren't really functioning probably when he was there. And then Josephus tells us quite a bit. And then on top of that, uh, we, get, we get the authentic voice in the scrolls themselves. And it's like, uh, it would be like all of a sudden finding a, a treasure chest of information about the zealots by the zealots when all we've had is Josephus and other people bad-mouthing them. And all of yeah. a sudden we get inside information about what it was like. And um, Josephus, when he describes them, Chaz, one of the more interesting things is he sees them as one of the major sects. You know, he had the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Essenes, and the zealots are the fourth philosophy but he categorized them in ways, or he, he tried to describe them in ways that would make sense in, in the Roman Empire with Roman philosophy. So he says, the sect of the Essenes affirm that fate governs all things and that nothing happens to humans but what is according to fate's or providence's determination. So to put this mildly, um, they are determinists. Uh, that is, they believe that the fates are in control. Now, that's Josephus's description. Hmm. And we, when we get to the scrolls, we don't get this language about fates. We got God. So they're very strong as providentialists. And this would put them more in line with the stronger sense of Calvinism, that everything that happens is determined by God and predestined by God. And so, or at least in some level, uh, I'm not saying the Essenes are Calvinists, 
but they would roughly serve that sort of uh, idea of determinism. And Josephus even tells us that uh, among the other groups, if you compare the Essenes to the Sadducees, the Pharisees, and the Zealots, the Essenes were people who loved one another far more. He says they had greater affection for one another than the other groups. So Josephus gives us some pretty interesting information about the Essenes that I think is probably reasonably accurate. Mm -hmm. He says they lived out in the wilderness and they took care of things and they were disciplined. But I, uh, I'd like to kind of go through a, a bit of a laundry list of some items that characterize the Essenes so that we can think about religion in our day, Christianity, the church in our day, and how in many ways Ecclesiastes is right. There's nothing new under the sun. There's, way for, there's ways for groups. Uh, groups are always going to form uh, in similar ways. And what happened with the Essenes is not unlike things that happen in our world. Yeah, those so, principles are kind of yeah. timeless, it seems like. Yeah, yeah. Well, the first thing that I would want to say about the Essenes and the Dead Sea Scrolls, and I've already said this, is that not all of the scrolls found in the Dead Sea area are from the Essenes. And we would be wise to focus on what is very clearly community rule and texts that are very distinctively characteristic of the Essenes on the basis of some things that we do know. So uh, that, that's an important thing. And I, I encourage people to own a copy of the Dead Sea Scrolls, especially for pastors uh, who may need to use them. And uh, there's two basic, uh, I guess there's three. One, I love the old translation by Giza Vermesh, the Dead Sea Scrolls in English, um, because that's the edition in English that was available when I was a student reading it the first time. And all the way through my doctoral days, it was basically the only English version. And I still like to use it. I think Giza Vermesh translated the Dead Sea Scrolls in accessible English and with clarity and accuracy. So I still use him. But everybody today who wants to study has to use the edition by Garcia Martinez and Tigchilar, uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls, the uh, study edition and the translation edition. And uh, the study edition has both Hebrew or Aramaic and the English translation, whereas there is also one just in English. And it's, I, I, I tend to see that as the one that most people use for translation. There's also um, a few other translations, but those are the ones that I use on a constant basis. And when I have to quote the Dead Sea Scrolls, that's what I use. And so uh, in reading the Dead Sea Scrolls, if you pay attention to those scrolls that clearly are talking about the community by the community, you're going to be closer to what the Essenes were really like. Now, the second thing, as I've mentioned, is this is a community that was precipitated by a takeover in Jerusalem that they considered secularization or uh, unholy or non-kosher when a non-priest seized control of the temple. A non-priest uh, uh, in line seized control of the temple. And as a result we see a movement that is a, they're segregationists, they're separationists, they're isolationists. Uh, a standard uh, understanding is that these people left Jerusalem um, with the hope that the place would go down. Uh, and uh, and they, so they were, they were uh, separatists. A third observation, and this is where we get to the core 
of the Essenes. They were devout and devoted to the Torah, but devoted to the Torah means they were devoted to their interpretation of the Torah. It is fair, I believe, to call them the super devout. Uh, Josephus even says they were the most devout people he had ever encountered. So we have to imagine people who were so zealous and so committed to obedience, to holiness as they understood it, to the Bible as they interpreted it, that they were willing to live in pretty difficult circumstances. You know, they're not that far from the Jordan River, mm -hmm. so they can get some fresh water, but they're closer to the Dead Sea, and uh, there's no help there for any kind of fluids. And it is an area that I would say, you know, at least half the year, if not more, is incredibly hot. They're not going to experience the breezes that uh, Jerusalem is going to experience in the evening from the Mediterranean. They're going to get some. They're also not going to experience uh, lush landfall. So they're going to have a harder time finding food. Uh, so they were, you know, to... It's like taking up shop in, uh, in the desert of New Mexico and forming a community and saying, we're going to live out here and follow the Lord with utter rigor. It's a pretty, uh, pretty tough place to live. So they, uh, a fourth characteristic then is that they separated to farm a sort of a convent of holiness in the wilderness. They refused to participate in the temple system of Jerusalem. They considered all the sacrifices unacceptable to God because they were not offered by the right people. And they withdrew to form their own community. But this is, this is probably where we touch ground with and touch common themes with people in our world. They believed that they were the one true Israel. And they were in a cosmic battle with others. I don't know about you, Chaz. But in my lifetime, I've run into a number of Christian groups who either originally thought they were the most faithful Christians ever oh, yeah. or still believe that they were the most faithful and observant and biblical Christians ever. I've run into a number of groups like this. Oh, without a doubt. Yeah, and uh, they can be kind of annoying, but they can also be a source of admiration for their zeal, their commitment. And they're willing to live out exactly uh, what they think uh, God wants them to do and what they think the Bible teaches. So, um, you know, I, I could pause there to see if you have any questions, but this idea that they were the one true Israel is absolutely important for understanding the Essenes. Well, I'm glad you bring it up. And my question is, is I wonder if, like, the theological term that we kind of use for this sometimes I think is eschatology and like what is their view of the end times where do they see how their place in the story and what they're trying to do to be separated what is that driving towards what is that accomplishing what's going what what do they see God accomplishing through them if they're um you know, if the, if their work and their purging is successful, do they see the, you know, the that now is will be the time because of how faithful they're living that God can can come and be with His people, or what is it that's kind of driving them from um, an idea of eschatology? Well, this is a good question, Chaz. Um, I, I this was this is a part of my notes, so you've you've uh, uh, you've trumped me. <laughs> um, 
I think that we would rely here mostly on what's called 1QM or the War Scroll, where they describe in uh, revelation-like stories and image and visions a cosmic a, a battle between the Katim and nobody knows for sure who the Katim is. I tend to think it's Rome. Uh, the Katim and aligned with other people that there's going to be a cosmic battle between the sons of darkness and the children of the light. And you know who the light is and who the darkness is and you know who's going to win. So they believed that they were withdrawing in hope of an apocalyptic act of God that would bring history as they now know it to a close, enter into a new chapter where the Qumran community, the Essenes, would become the true people of God, right. living in Jerusalem, uh, you know, running the temple and everything, mm -hmm. and they were they were the ones who were going to do that. So, so, so they saw themselves as a part of this great epic battle um, between yeah. the Katim and, and the Light, and that is what would kind of. Um, restore God's intention and his ultimate will to um, his people with them being the ones kind of their, at least their interpretation of yeah, yeah, the, gonna... the Torah being the ones that is being expanded through, through pretty much all of the Israel at that point. Well, they're going to win and the rest yeah. of and people who don't join their team mm -hmm. are going to lose. It's, it's like the book of revelation where mm -hmm. you see the Christians uh, who do not have the mark of the beast are going to conquer the world, including Rome and everybody else who doesn't believe in Christ and find him to be the king. So it's it's like that. It has that same kind of battle motif. So it's like uh, Lord of the Rings, and it's like uh, Chronicles of Narnia, and it's like Jerry Jenkins and Tim LaHaye's Left Behind series. So, you know, one of the things that is interesting um, and uh, about the Dead Sea and this uh, about the community of the Essenes uh, and their holiness is it it was something to join this group. You didn't just uh, they didn't go out and, and try to find somebody walking up the uh, alongside the Dead Sea or crossing the Jordan River and say, hey, come join us. Yeah, uh, it, it took uh, they went. Anybody who wanted to be a member uh, had to go through a process of initiation and probation. And not only did that happen, but they were assigned a status in the Qumran community, uh -huh. the Essenes who were there. And they, they probably are not, they're not all the Essenes. Some live more in Jerusalem and other places probably. And they, um, they would have had a status and they would have had to act according to their status. And not only that, if you, if you did things like fart in a public meeting. I remember or, hearing about that. Or spit, <laughs> uh, you could be. Uh, excommunicated or at least banned for a few days into the wilderness and to give you a little shovel and you can go find your own food um, and bury your own whatevers. And this is this was this was a rigorous community. And occasionally I've been around some people who have that kind of rigor and that kind of oh, yeah. sanctity about the community that if you don't if you don't act like us, then you're going to uh, you're going to get kicked out. And this is the other side of it, and I, and I, I should have brought this up sooner. I, I mentioned earlier that with Jonathan Maccabeus becoming a priest, there is this, there is a, there was a belief that the, uh, that someone was entitled to be the priest who was the leader 
of the Qumran community or the Essenes. And this this person in Hebrew is called the Moret Tzedek, or the teacher of righteousness. And he is often uh, found writing, or you know, there are his his voice is heard in the Dead Sea Scrolls, opposing the wicked priest, who I think is probably Jonathan Maccabeus. So there was a very strong leader uh, at the at Qumran, uh, and this leader would have had you know some people around him, uh, some high high top elders type things that that kept kept everybody in line. And um, even though uh, I don't think we should see it as rigorously cold, but rigorously passionate and warm. And these people were enthusiastic about their beliefs and convinced to the bottom of their heart that they were the true people of God and everybody else was false. And uh, one of the things that we know about the teacher of righteousness is he had a particular and distinctive way of reading the Bible. And this is to me, one of the most fascinating elements of the Dead Sea Scrolls. And if you read what is called the Pesher books, Pesher Habakkuk, etc., you will see that they go through uh, books of the Old Testament, prophet, prophetic books, and read the text and then say, this is about us. And right. so Pesher exegesis or Pesher interpretation is, mm -hmm. it's sort of an inspired hermeneutic to see through what the text says in its own day, back when, let's say, Habakkuk or Isaiah wrote, and to realize that that the words that were written then were actually about this community. Mm -hmm. And so it's not so much this is that, which is often how Pesher is, is translated, but this is about us and uh, the whole community, because we found a whole library in Cave 4, um, was a, a Bible-based and study-based community. But it, it reminds me, when I read the Pesher books of the Dead Sea Scrolls, it reminds me of what life was like for me in the 1960s and 70s you know, in American evangelicalism and fundamentalism when there was so much popular teaching on, on the rapture and eschatology. And I remember learned, by that I mean, people who were smart, who could read Hebrew and Aramaic and Greek and Latin and English and German and French, learned conversations about whether Henry Kissinger was, was the Antichrist hmm. because he had that birthmark on his, you know, on his head. And so there were, there was all kinds of, uh, of interpretations that I grew up with thinking that this text refers to the United States and this text, the Gog and Magog, refers to Russia and this, uh, the fig tree in Matthew chapter 24 refers to the rebirth of Israel in 1948. And by golly, by 1988, it's got to be wrapped up because it's going to take place within a generation. So I grew up with this kind of pesher exegesis. Mm -hmm. So I, when I read this stuff, I think, okay. That's that now is proven to be wrong about the Essenes, and frankly, it's been proven to be wrong about the things that I grew up listening to as well. So uh, that's it's definitely an all-or-nothing interpretation, <laughs> and it it's, is. it's something I mean, still around today. I mean, people are still doing that, and yeah, yeah. Um, you, I I see it. I see it online, yeah. and some people are convinced of it. I have friends who still do this, and uh, they'll say things to me, and you know, I I. 
I try not to give a Mona Lisa or a Cheshire cat grin, uh -huh. but I suppose my facial expression gives away that I think they're a little loony on these interpretations. I've, I've, I've weathered and withered these interpretations and, um, I'm just not convinced that that's the way to read the Bible. Yeah. Uh, another point I wanted to make is this, is that uh, the Dead Sea Scroll community, the Qumran, the Essenes who lived at Qumran, were a community of goods. And by that I mean when you joined officially, everything you owned was given to the community, and the community from that point on, from that point on owned everything you gave them, and you did not have a right to those goods. And... Uh, so they they uh, they were a communitarian. I wouldn't call them communist. I think that doesn't help. That's just too much about economic theory. Um, but a communitarian group of uh, often called. Uh, I know a scholar in England named Brian Capper, who talks about a community of goods, and I think that's the the best way to describe this group is that they lived off of one another and they supported one another. They ate meals together. In silence, according to an order, they marched in, or they, I don't know other way, they paraded in, or they walked in in a single file in order and sat in their appropriate seats. And I, I, I was looking at this the other day, I couldn't figure it out. I think they ate in silence. Uh, you didn't dare burp or anything like that. Mm -hmm. uh, you'd get yourself in trouble. But it was, it was a, a radical vision of a communitarian life. And uh, there are there are Philo and Pliny are wrong when they say the the Qumran community the, or the Essenes were unmarried and it was all males. We have found they have found female bones and children's bones in the Qumran community. I believe that's where they found them. And uh, our other texts, the Dead Sea Scrolls themselves, make it clear that there are women present. So, uh, but they were they were so. In other words, they weren't. Monks, like our monastic tradition in the Catholic or Orthodox tradition, but they did have a, a bit of a convent-like feel. Right. Dressed alike, ate alike, learned to think alike, and awaited for the act of God's judgment alike so that they could all rule alike. So there was a lot of uh, communitarianness about them. Well, and to maybe wrap up our time together because we don't have much left here, but um, with with that, what you just mentioned about the monks and some of the different traditions, I know one of the things that has come up recently within the last year or so is um, the rise in the concept of like the Benedictine option in um, taking an evaluation yeah. of where we are culturally and oh, taking yeah. the approach of withdrawal and looking at church history and being serious about the fact that you know, much of Orthodox Christianity was preserved through the faithfulness of the those who withdrew from society. And yet at the same time, we know that as we read the New Testament, as you know, we talk about pretty much every week on kingdom roots, that the kingdom is taking root in a context. And it isn't just withdrawal and, um, you know, total disregard from the society that Jesus's mission moves forward. So how can how can we look at the Essenes, man? Or maybe do they have something to teach us, or or yeah. um, in contrast to how those two dynamics fit together? Well, uh, let's say this: uh, there are probably times when uh, some super committed people need to withdraw to find 
the will of God, discern it, to embody it, and to teach the rest of the people of God how better to live. I think there's there would be times for that. So I don't just sit in judgment on the monastic movement. I'm, a, I guess, too much a fan of St. Francis, who was not really segregated from the world, and St. Benedict. Uh, I like these people, and I think they've done great good for the church and for Christians. There, but the Benedict option is more, uh, it's almost like an evangelical Bible study group that gets really serious about embodying the way of Jesus in our world today and focuses upon life in the church instead of trying to change society and voting and getting all riled up about it. Because uh, Rod, Rod Dreher, in his The Benedict Option, actually is not saying that they need to withdraw permanently, mm. but that they need to withdraw to learn to embody a completely set of a different Christian way of life. And then as a result of learning that Christian way of life, uh, make an impact on society through the church being, let's say, an embodiment of the kingdom of God. Um, what I would say the Essenes are most valuable for is to rebuke American laxity on its relationship to the world and its lack of holiness in distinction from the world. The Essenes embody a radical commitment to do the will of God when they are convinced the rest of the world is totally against God. We can, we can easily just say they overdid it and overcooked it. And I, and I would agree with that. They, they did. But their instinct of saying, we can't compromise with the world. We can't compromise with silly misinterpretations of Scripture. We have to be fully committed and if being fully committed means we cannot join um, large groups of people in their way of life, then that is something that we can learn from. So I, in my life, I have learned a lot and, and, uh, from Mennonites, from the Anabaptist tradition, from people like Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who could not participate in the German state church and, and therefore, he could not participate in the theological education that the universities were giving to future candidates in ministry. So he withdrew and formed his own seminary, mm. not for the purpose of hiding from the rest of the world, but for preparing people to enter that world from a stronger Christian basis and with a, with a deeper Christian message. Mm. So maybe Bonhoeffer could represent for us uh, something of this way of life. Now, he didn't have an apocalyptic theory, although he did know that the way of Hitler was going to lead to death sure. and destruction. Uh, he didn't sit around uh, uttering the kinds of uh, castigations of Israel the way, uh, or of Germany the way uh, the Essenes did. But we can learn from the time, there are times when we need to back off and there are times we need to engage. And maybe people today, by reading about the Essenes, can say maybe we need to think about this as a viable option at times in the in the American history of the church. Sure, at least be inspired by it. Okay, Yeah. so yeah. to end, wrap us up on this series. We've talked about Pharisees, Sadducees, Essenes, and Zealots here. And um, anything to send everybody away with these four different conversations that we've had? 
Well, I would I would say what I said at the beginning. There's nothing new under the sun. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are, there are there are radicals. There are passionate radicals. There are violent radicals. There are sectarian, withdrawing, pacifist radicals. There are people who want to follow the law. There are people who compromise with the state, with the government, with the powers. All of those are found in first century Judaism in their own form and in their own way. But all of these are common instincts for religious people. They are also common instincts for Christian people. And we need, I think, by learning about them, because they're so different from us and they have all these different categories from the first century, we, we can learn about ourselves in fresh ways by seeing how they operated and what their success was or what their failure was. And so I would encourage people to read more about the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Zealots, and the Essenes in order to shed light on the American church. That's great. Well, thank you, Scott, for today, and thank you, our listeners, for joining us, and hope you've enjoyed this series as we've walked through some of these different groups around during the time that the kingdom took root with Jesus, and we hope they're helpful as you contemplate and really imagine how the kingdom is to take root in our context that we're a part of. So uh, thanks again for joining us. We look forward to being with you next time as we continue that very same conversation on how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now. 